You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host once again is Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. This is Episode 30 of Lighthearted, and it's being released a week after the end of the open house season at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in Newcastle, New Hampshire. It was a good season. Hi, Jeremy. It was a good season. Pretty soon, I'll be compiling some statistics from our season that I'd like to share with our listeners, including the number of visitors this season and our volunteer hours. Excellent. You know, it was really cool. We uh, recently got to see ourselves in Russian. We did. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, we had a TV crew from Voice of America uh, from Russia. Uh, They actually came in the spring, but we just got to see the... uh, finished product. I guess they were doing uh, some videos on various locations in the United States, and they did a segment on Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they visited Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse as part of that. So you and I, Cindy, were were part of that video with Russian subtitles and, and Russian voiceover. That was that was pretty pretty darn cool. <laughs> it's really neat. I'm I'm still pretty excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if the uh, Voice of America Facebook page is available in, in English, but we let's uh, let's make a point of putting that in our Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses Facebook page so people can see it on there. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. Uh, so moving along, today's episode of Lighthearted includes the second half of an interview I recorded last month with the only official lighthouse keeper still employed by the federal government in the United States, Sally Snowman of Boston Light in Boston Harbor. The segment we'll be listening to today includes Sally's memories of Sammy, the Boston Light dog. Sammy was the subject of a children's book that Sally wrote. And today's interview segment also includes a discussion of Boston Light ghost stories, which seems fitting since we're getting into the Halloween season. Uh, And before we go to the interview, I'd like to give our listeners a little more historic background about Boston Light. Not only was Little Brewster Island the site of Boston Light in outer Boston Harbor, the site of North America's first lighthouse, it was also the site of America's first fog signal. The first two keepers of Boston Light George Worthylake and Robert Saunders both drowned in boat accidents in 1718. John Hayes, an experienced seaman described as, quote, an able-bodied and discreet person, unquote, became the next keeper. In 1719, Hayes asked for a gallery, or balcony, to be installed around the tower's lantern room so that he could clean the glass of ice and snow. He also noted the need for some kind of fog signal. He requested that, quote, a great gun may be placed on the said island to answer ships in a fog, unquote. A cannon, America's first fog signal, was placed on the island in 1719. The cannon cast in 1700 and possibly relocated from Long Island in the Inner Harbor served on Little Brewster Island for 132 years. Passing ships would fire their cannons when passing nearby in times of fog and the keeper would reply with a blast from the light station. Around this time, the keeper was also required to signal if enemy vessels were approaching by raising and lowering a flag, quote, so many times as there are ships approaching, unquote. 
A 1,375-pound fog bell operated by clockwork machinery replaced the old fog cannon in 1851. The bell was struck every 47 seconds in times of poor visibility and it operated for six hours on a single winding. The fog trumpet replaced the bell in 1872. In the late 19th century, students from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology conducted experiments with fog signals at Boston Light, trying to perfect a signal that would penetrate the so-called ghost walk, an area about six miles east of the lighthouse where no sound could penetrate. Despite the students' best efforts, even the largest horn could not penetrate the ghost walk. In his book, A Lighthouse Family, Harold Jennings, son of keeper Charles Jennings, described a celebrated rescue his father performed in 1918. Quote, On February 3, 1918, the USS Alacrity, a Coast Guard patrol boat, ran aground in the ice a few yards from the station. The tide was ebbing fast and it wasn't long before the vessel lay over on her side. This made it impossible for the crew to launch their lifeboat. Dad and the assistant keeper saw their plight and began figuring out how to rescue the crew. They reasoned that if they tried to get a dory through the ice cakes, they would be crushed. Dad remembered that in the boathouse there was some gunpowder and firing caps that were used in the old fog cannon. The assistant keeper got a coil of rope that could be used. They set the fuse and pushed the gunpowder down the barrel. They made a hard ball on the end of the rope. The remaining coil lay next to the cannon. The fuse was ignited, and when the gun fired, the rope followed the ball out to the ship. It was not quite on target, so they tried again with no success. Now they had to launch the dory and take a chance that the ice did not close in on them. After a couple of trips, carrying the crew and gear, the rescue was a success. This was the last time the fog cannon was fired at Boston Light." Unquote. In 1962, the fog cannon was moved to the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut, where it was placed in a position facing the Thames River. That's how they say it in Connecticut, by the way. In 1993, it was returned by helicopter to Little Brewster, and the venerable fog cannon sits today inside the entryway to the lighthouse tower. And now let's go to the second half of my interview with Sally Snowman. For those who missed the first part of the interview, let's recap some basic information about Sally. Back in the late 1980s, the Coast Guard was planning to automate and de-staff Boston Light Station. Legislation was passed in October 1989 to keep U.S. Coast Guard personnel on the island, making Boston Light the only Coast Guard-staffed light station in the United States. But after the Coast Guard was transferred to the Department of Homeland Security in 2003, a decision was made to hire a new civilian keeper of Boston Light. The person hired was Sally Snowman. Sally had already been involved as a member of the Coast Guard Auxiliary, and she and her husband, Jay Thompson, had written a book, Boston Light, A Historical Perspective. Sixteen years later, Sally remains the only lighthouse keeper in the United States still employed by the U.S. Coast Guard. I've known her since the 1990s, and I had a chance to sit down and talk with her last month. You'll also hear her husband, Jay Thompson, in parts of this interview. Let's listen to part two of my interview with Sally Snowman, Keeper of Boston Light, now. (laughs) 
Sal, you mentioned uh, Sammy the dog a, mm-hmm. a while ago. Boston Light has a, a great legacy of pets. Mm-hmm. Dogs, also cats. Uh, I've met some of them over the years. You've known some special dogs there. You wrote a children's book about Sammy. Can you tell us a little bit about Sammy, yes. please? Well, Sammy um, was adopted by the Coast Guard as a pup. Mm-hmm. And his first billet was at Situate Coast Guard Station, and that went seasonal. So then he went to Marshfield Coast Guard Radio Station, and that went day duty. And so they brought him into Base Boston, and Base Boston said, get that dog off the base. So they called out to the lighthouse, and this would be um, um, 1997, and the keeper, he was a new one, Scott Stanton, and said, Scott, how would you like a black lab, which is the Coast Guard mascot, out at the island. He's seven years old. Um, he's a great pet. So Scott said, you know what? I've wanted a lab out here. Bring him on out. So they put him on a Coast Guard boat. And when Sammy was on the mainland, he had to be on a leash. So when the boat came up and nosed up to the pier, he leaped off. He didn't need any encouragement whatsoever. And he just ran and ran and ran around the island, went down to the beach, getting his nose in the muscle beds and things like that. And Scott and him um, bonded immediately. And the story that's in the book that I told that first year in 2007, Scott would climb the tower and Sammy would follow with him, but he wouldn't go up the ladder. He could only do the 76 spiral stairs in the landing. So it was literally a stormy um, nor'easter in October. And so Scott wanted to do rounds just one more time to make sure everything was copacetic up there because that was before it was automated, that it would be flipped on at sunset and flipped off at sunrise. So Sammy was going up the stairs, and something spooked him. And the next thing Scott heard was a howl and a yip and a thud. And he had fallen down at least 50 feet of the, you know, uh, 70 feet inside the tower. Wow. Um, the thing that saved him was he hit the handrail and there's still a dent in it. And the Coast Guard wants to straighten it out. And I said, no, 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 that's Coast Guard history. That's where Sammy's belly hit and slid off and went the remaining 20 feet down. If it wasn't for the railing, he probably wouldn't have lived the remaining seven years. Well, because it was so um, rough out there, it took 10 days before the seas could calm, before they could launch the station blow-up boat to take Sammy to the vet. And the time he got to the vet, the only thing that he had was a few um, black and blue ribs. He had a cut over his forehead, and Scott had stayed up the whole night with him in case he went into a coma. He didn't want that to happen, so we'd wake Sammy up every hour to make sure he was okay. He lived for seven years after that, and he was a little lame, um, but wouldn't you, after you fell down, I think the arthritis got into some of his bones. Mm-hmm. So in 2004, that's a year after I got hired, he died of natural causes. Jay and I went into Boston the day after the final tour, National Park tour. And by that time, we also had a replacement dog, Samantha. And so Sammy and Samantha were left to guard the island while we went in so I could check my emails and do other stuff and came back and Sammy was not, did not wake out from his afternoon snooze on the lawn. 
So we have him buried on the island, and every year we make a garden for him. But what was happening is as the weather was getting yucky, even when the active duty were out there, we were taking Sammy home for the winters. So we lived in Plymouth at the time. So Sammy spent the winters with us um, uh, probably like 2001, 2002, 2003. So um, we were used to him being with us. And um, so Sammy and I were very, very close. And so we wrote a book about him. Yeah. What's the name of the book? Sammy, the Boston Lighthouse Dog. Yes. That, is that still, people can still buy that, right? Well, we never had it put on Amazon or in the stores. So mm-hmm. if you see it online, it's because somebody bought it from me and mm-hmm. and is now selling yeah. it. I'm sure people can find it if they look, look So if they enough. spend more than like a dollar for it, because we sell them for $10. Uh-huh. But it might be an antique someday. We probably yeah. have about 50 of them left. Uh-huh. Uh, let's talk a little bit about life at Boston Light. I, I, over the years, going back to when I was in college, which goes back quite a few years, uh, I've spent a lot of time on the Boston Harbor Islands. I know how special they are. I actually started uh, uh, volunteering to help give tours at Boston Light back in the 80s, uh, late 80s, as a volunteer for Friends of the Boston Harbor Islands when I lived in Winthrop, Mass., there was a nice piece in Yankee Magazine where you talked about life, uh, how life on the island is transformational. That I think you used that word. I mm-hmm. think that's a perfect word. Uh, what are some of the things you love most about life on Little Brewster Island? I think that when I stepped off the dinghy back um, when I was 10 years old and I looked up at the light, it spoke to me. There was a spiritual connection to it. So it's not just... Um, the, you know, three-dimensional tower that speaks to me. It's all that energy, all that, all the stuff that's happened in Boston Light, uh, in Boston Harbor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have sensed out there is during the King's Phillips War in 1678 or in that ballpark, um, they interred the Christianized natives and we hear about it at Deer Island but I always had a sense that they were at Great Booster and Little Booster Island and in those bygone days Little Booster Island was better connected the sea level was lower and it was actually referred to not only as Little Booster Island as the head of Great Booster Island so I found out just a few years ago, when a park ranger brought some teachers out to the island and telling the story about the interned natives, that they were put on four islands in the harbor. And Great Brewster Island was one of them. So the feeling that I was picking up when I was 10 years old, not even really aware of the King's Phillips, I mean, I read it in a history book, but not connecting it to my personal life in the harbor. But that was what was coming to me in 1994 when Jay and I started going out there. And um, um, I'm an energy reader and can sense things. So um, I was just feeling the presence, a heavy, heavy presence of not only of these Native Americans, but also... Uh, those who had died 
out in the outer harbor and that and at the time you know i didn't know there were five shipwrecks on little brewster island it, you know that that came right up on little brewster hmm. so i mean to sense that um without knowing the factual piece of that when you're 10 years old yeah um so it just all came through when Jay and I did the research for the 1999 book. I got a better understanding of what I was sensing. Well, I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who's crazy because I, I say to people sometimes when I visit lighthouses, sometimes I feel like they want to speak to me. They have things to tell me, the lighthouses and the places around them. I just feel like they're, they're really, I, I honestly feel like they're, they're speaking to me. And I think you understand what I'm, what I'm saying. You at one time actually asked me for some good ghost stories. Mm -hmm. And um, my response to that, it was in my early keeper days. And um, because so many people would discredit me as the Coast Guard historian for Boston Light, if I shared these stories with you. But things have changed. They have shifted so much in the last 20 years that it's okay to talk about that stuff because yeah. it's more in the mainstream. The mainstream. Yeah. And the also, because I've had those personal things, it's like, where would I even begin to tell you about ghost stories? Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to get to that. Do we want to get to that now? Do you sure. want to talk about that a little bit? I've been hearing ghost stories coming from Boston Light since I started uh, helping with tours there in the 80s. Uh, I think uh, Dennis Dever, the Coast Guard keeper in the late 80s, was probably the first person to start telling me some of those stories. He used to uh, blame it on old George, meaning George Worthy Lake, the first keeper who uh, drowned there in 1718, November 1718. Uh, but uh, Dennis wasn't the only person who told me told me things. A number of several of the Coast Guard keepers in that that era told me they they felt there was something odd going on there. Um, Dennis told me that one time he was at the kitchen in the kitchen in the keeper's house, looking out the window towards the tower, and he swore he he was sure he saw somebody a male figure standing in the in the lantern of the lighthouse. And he said uh, the only other guy on the uh, island, to the best of his knowledge, was right in the next room. And he checked, and he was right there. So Dennis hurried over to the lighthouse and went up, and there was nobody there. And he was told me he was positive he had seen somebody up there. Uh, and also he told me he had a running battle in the uh, boathouse that he would have the radio on a rock station. And it kept he, he swore to me it kept changing itself to a classical station. <laughs> and he would switch it back and it would go back and forth. So that's the sort of stuff he told me. But over the years, I heard other things too. And you you know, you know told me a couple of things. But uh, would you care to comment on, on a little bit more on this subject? Well, an interesting modern day one. Um, this is an assistant keeper that relayed this story to me. Um, that uh, the auxiliarist was walking up the would be the south side walkway to go to the tower to do rounds. So it's it's dusk, and um, so while they went up and they were coming back, they heard sneakers running on the north walkway coming like from the cistern building, and when they turned to look. All they could see was a white shirt going by, but they could still hear the feet. So they went into the keeper's house, and there were two active duty on duty that time, asleep, one in the lounge chair, the other one on the couch. And they looked up at the auxiliaries and said, wow, you look like you saw a ghost. <laughs> and they said, 
And as they, they saw the two of them sitting there, they said, I think I did. And then told the story of that. So that's like with sneak it. So we're not even talking of, of bygone days. We're, right. So there was a, a, a keeper, an assistant keeper that was really, really attached to little Brewster Island. That spirit is still there. And I can think of, uh, Dennis Dever had a real attachment for the, for the island. And there was a few others too, like Scott Stanton, that they could just, you know, that I know that ran around the island. That's, if you run around that 10 times, that's a mile. Well, there are certainly, yeah, there are certainly some so keepers the, from the Coast Guard era who are, have passed away. Uh, no, they're still alive. Well, right. Well, you think it could be somebody who's still alive whose energy is still, still, still there. there. Yes. Well, who knows? Who knows? Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't know the answers to these things. I Absolutely think there's, not. there's a lot of things we don't understand. That's the way I, I see it. Uh, another interesting story that was in uh, Yankee Magazine some years ago, there was a, a, a Coast Guard, a wife of a Coast Guard keeper from the 1950-ish era, Maisie Freeman Anderson, whose husband, I think his name was Russell Anderson, was a, a keeper around 1950. And she said she knew nothing about the history of the place when they lived there. She was the daughter of a lighthouse keeper in Maine, grew up at uh, lighthouses. But around 1950, she was uh, trying to sleep and... She said on uh, repeated occasions she heard a young girl sobbing uh, at night, and uh, and sometimes she would hear this little girl r- repeating "Shadwell, Shadwell," <laughs> and she had had no idea what that meant. And then later, when she researched the place, she found out that the slave uh, who died along with George Worthy, like the first keeper, when the canoe capsized in November 1718, that the slave's name was Shadwell. And she was kind of shocked to find that out because she knew that that's what she had heard this little girl's voice saying. Uh, so she felt she had heard sort of a replay of that incident that happened uh, in 1718. So I don't know the answers. <laughs> I don't know, but there's there's some interesting stories. But, uh, you know, it seems like almost any lighthouse that's been around a long time, if you research the history, you'll find some interesting stories like that along those lines. I don't pretend to, to know know any of the answers to this. Anything else you want to add along those lines before we move on? (laughs) We could talk just about that for about three hours. Yeah, we could. We could. What's it like being on the island in a big storm? And you mentioned that you were there for a big storm not too long ago. That was the last storm. Absolutely. Yes. It was one that was supposed to be just a nor'easter, and it turned out to be a full-blown blizzard. So um, they couldn't take us off in a timely manner, so we spent um, an initial two days past our our scheduled mm-hmm. watch time because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. the person that I was on watch with, we were running from window to window. Oh, look at this wave. Oh, no, I've got the best one over here. We had 20 foot. We were able to estimate there were 20 foot waves out there uh, hitting like the back of the house. So laying on the bed, it felt like you were on a vibrator bed. <laughs> Wow. And and the question is, was I afraid? No. What a way to go. You know, if I got washed off to sea, th- that would have been fine with me. <laughs> I'd like a burial at sea anyway, but you're not allowed to do that. Your ashes can be spread, but your body can't be disposed there. So it's, there. it's one of those things, if you were there, uh, that's how you met your end. You'd be doing something you love to you feel that way about it. Mm-hmm. What a way to go. <laughs> wow. What what is it like playing an important playing such an important role as you do in a location with such 
tremendous history that's played such a, a great role in the history and commerce of our nation. Do you, when you're out there, do you, do you feel that a lot of the time, just as you walk around the island? Is that something you, you feel? No. I see it um, as um, an honor to have this position. And um, I don't think in terms of the way that... I don't know how to say this. I personally don't think that Sally Snowman is important the position is important right and my job is to keep that place safe keep the people safe that are out there and to tell the story as historically correct as we can and if that's giving sally snowman notoriety i don't see it as that i see that as the keeper doing that I understand what you're saying. It's I use the word humbling. I find this job very humbling. Um, it is. I don't feel it's an ego trip. If anybody thinks that my ego comes through, I am not aware of that because I do my best not to get my ego involved in the keeper's position. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense to me. What's your favorite part of the job? Uh, <laughs> sitting at the top of the tower with my feet dangling <laughs> over the gallery, just watching the sunset or the sunrise, just watching the world go by. I don't think you could pause. I can't imagine that anything could beat that. That's, that's just great. Uh, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but what's your least favorite part of the job? Having to leave the island. <laughs> okay. It breaks my heart yeah. every time, especially now that we're seasonal. Um, it's, it's very hard. Yeah. It's very hard. Yeah. Well, that's the perfect answer to that. Uh, there have been some issues. You've touched on this with public access at Little Brewster the last two seasons due to storm damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you update our listeners on what's happening as far as that goes? Well, what happened in 2018 is we had three, um, storms, one in January and two back-to-back -back in March, that did tremendous damage out there. And so what happened in 2018 is they, one of the very obvious things that you could see from a boat is there's a wooden walkway that connects the concrete pier to the island itself. And what happened was that um, that literally got broken up like splintered wood. Uh, that got totally... Uh, didn't get rebuilt, a brand new one. And when that happened, uh, it got pushed somewhat up against the boathouse, and it didn't appear to do any damage to the boathouse. But there were some questionable structural issues to the boathouse anyway, and that just red, was red-flagged. So, um, so they found other structural issues that if we didn't have the storm, would not have revealed themselves. So this year we couldn't have um, tours out there either because of that. And they're even limiting our time, the myself and the auxiliary's time out there because they're concerned about the, these safety things. And the Coast Guard's working to mitigate them, but like everything else, it's coming up with a plan, getting the fundraising, and then bringing it into manifestation. So the question is, like, will we have tours next year? Will it be open? 
it's uncertain right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the island, because of the rising tide, it's just getting hammered. Even if it's we don't have another big storm like 2018, because it it's just encroached even further and further. And where we used to say that at rare times would be two islands, like during the blizzard of of 78, we were two islands and the assistant keepers are out there, went waist deep water to get refuge in the tower. That happens on a regular basis. Every winter now, we are two islands. And it recedes, and it's not as deep, it's not waist deep. But you, the, by the number of rocks, we have to shovel off that low point of the island, off the walkways every year. So it's, yeah. right now there's an uncertainty to it. Yeah. Well, this is something we're facing at, at quite a few lighthouses mm-hmm. these days, something we're going to have to deal with. And another question that I get asked is um, that, uh, you know, is the Coast Guard talking about letting the island go, transferring the island because of all these issues? And my response is, they've been talking about that for 39 years. Mm-hmm. Mine was a temp job for 18 months to two years. It's 16 years so it's it's on the radar. It has been on the radar. So it shouldn't be any surprise yeah. to anybody if they hear that it's being talked about. It's never stopped being talked about. Letting it go is in transfer to the National Park Service. Well, or? it's we we're not even saying that's happening. I'm just saying they're getting the questions for it. Yeah. And so yeah. it's another unknown. Let's but look. that's a lot of questions because why has it for two seasons not been open and it will be open next mm-hmm. year and what's you know what is the core issue and the core issue is that we have some very severe safety issues out there and um, finding the money through the Coast Guard with them also needing to maintain Coast Guard stations and ships and small boats and things like that we're in competition for that money yeah but uh, the last two seasons uh, people have been able to take cruises from the Boston waterfront that at least go close Mm -hmm. to the lighthouse and also go close to Graveslight, Mm -hmm. go through Boston Harbor. You get a view of at least the top of Long Island Headlight on the way out. And Boston Harbor is just so beautiful. You know, I I love Boston Harbor. It's actually uh, uh, one of the most beautiful harbors anywhere uh, and of such a historic harbor. And so people can get a nice narrated cruise and see... Uh, Boston Light, Graves Light, Long Island Headlight. Uh, and if there is no access as far as landing at Boston Light next year, at least people will be able to do that. Uh, so what the mm-hmm. um, the Park Service um, has done is they don't want to lose the Boston Light page for giving tours out of Boston right. Light. So now they've been calling it the Boston Light Cruise. And we were um, on the cruise just this past weekend uh-huh. and there was one passenger that the spouse had made the reservations yeah. and they thought they were going to be able to go on the island and climb the tower yeah. like they had done In the three past. years ago yeah. so they were a tad disgruntled because they didn't read the description right so that's just a heads up if you google uh, boston lighthouse tour yeah. it will bring you to that page and instead it will say boston lighthouse Cruise. Gonna read read it carefully. Okay, read it carefully. Yes, and then it explains that there's three lighthouses that get featured: Long Island Headlight, yeah. Boston Light, and Graves. It's still an excellent cruise. It is. 
But if you're really thinking and you're bringing your kids on board yeah. that were there three years ago that couldn't right, climb. Right, So. Oh, it's, it's too bad. It's too bad. Uh, having been at Boston Light many times in my life, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a loss. And I hope, I hope tours will be able to land there again in the future. Mm-hmm. But I understand what you're saying, that there are serious issues to be faced and solved. Um, and I hope they're solved. But for now, that is still an excellent cruise, and I hope people will will do it. Mm-hmm. With that, uh, Sally, I want to thank you so much for spending some time and doing an extended interview <laughs> with us. Uh, and Jay, also, thank you both so much for doing this. And you are living lighthouse history. And I mean that, I guess that has kind of a double meaning, what I just said. But uh, again, thank you so much, Sally. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I hope to see you at Boston Light again in the future. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Sally. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to play a special sound clip. Maurice Babcock was the last civilian keeper of Boston Light from 1926 to 1941. When he retired, Ralph Norwood, who had been an assistant keeper, became the next head keeper. The Coast Guard had taken over management of the nation's lighthouses from the Civilian Lighthouse Service in 1939, and Ralph Norwood joined the Coast Guard and became the first Coast Guard keeper of Boston Light. Years later, his grandson, Willie Emerson, son of Georgia Norwood Emerson, recorded an interview with his grandfather, keeper Ralph Norwood. I'd like to play you a brief clip from that interview with the permission of Willie Emerson. Willie asked his grandfather to describe the duties of a lighthouse keeper. The quality of the recording isn't great, but I hope you'll be able to understand it. All our jobs were doing carpenter work, shingling roofs, painting, painting, we had to paint all the buildings, whitewash the tower and whitewash the signal house and run the fog signal. Had to stay awake all night, of course. Somebody had to be awake all night to see that the light didn't go out or have any trouble with it. And if it came in fog, we had to start the fog signals going. Oh, it's a working job, just like any other job. I especially like the end of the clip where Ralph Norwood says, Oh, it's a working job, just like any other job. That's a typical thing for a lighthouse keeper to say. They kept that light lit, sunset to sunrise, and kept that fog signal going as needed, period. They were very matter-of-fact about it. They didn't see themselves as heroes. Ralph Norwood marked the transition from civilian keepers to the Coast Guard, and Sally Snowman marks the bridge back from Coast Guard to civilian. It's a great legacy, and Boston Light has seen much drama and devotion in 303 years of lightkeeping. That's all for this episode of Lighthearted. Thanks to Jeff Gales, Maria Cornelius, Kenya Almond, Rich Gales, Tom Tagg, and all the staff and volunteers of the United States Lighthouse Society in Hansville, Washington, and everywhere. Be sure to check out uslhs.org for information on the Society's passport program, on domestic and international tours, the J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog, and all the resources the U.S. Lighthouse Society has to offer. And also check out the USLHS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A big shout out to all the volunteers and staff of the American Lighthouse Foundation, the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, the Florida Lighthouse Association, and all the many hardworking lighthouse preservation organizations in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. We're all part of the same team. Keep up the great work. 
As always, thank you for listening and keep a good light.